So continuing in Romans chapter 8, Paul has been on the subject of our great hope, uh, living in the expectation of the ultimate realization of our redemption, where uh, both we and even the creation itself, ultimately, who are groaning currently to be fully redeemed, fully experiencing the expression of redemption in all of its fullness. I'm using the word fullness a lot here because that's what we're talking about, is the full culmination of everything that we've been hoping for is ultimately realized. And so living in the expectation between now and then is what Paul continues to talk about in the next two verses here, verses 24 and 25 of chapter 8. So let me go ahead and read those here. Again, this is Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what does? Uh, why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Now the word hope there speaks of uh, of an expectation, the idea that we know something is coming and therefore we are looking with great anticipation for it. Uh, it's not something that we have yet. It's not something that we have uh, in our possession per se. We do in, in, you know, in terms of our Christian faith and the salvation that ultimately we're going to fully experience one day. We do have it as a possession. It is something we stand on in the sense of having a hope, but a sure hope. Uh, not something that we're wondering if it will come to pass, but something that we know for sure will come to pass because it rests upon the faithfulness of God and his own accomplishing of the purposes of our salvation in that. So we're not hoping for it in the sense that we're not sure if it's going to happen. We're having an expectation of it because we know it's going to happen. This is the great definition of the term hope in the New Testament. It is every bit the expectation. It's the knowledge of a sure thing that is yet to be fully uh, realized or fully received. But it is, it is, it is, uh, it lives in that space of being a sure thing that is just simply waiting, not so much for the uh, for the coming of an if, but just simply referring to a when. And so that's what we're talking about here when we talk about hope. So consider it this way, as Paul would say uh, in Romans here again, verse 24, for we were saved in this expectation, right? Hope is an expectation. But an expectation that is seen or is right before us or is, is here is not really an expectation. For why does one still expect what he sees? In other words, if it were here, you wouldn't be expecting it anymore. It's here now. It's being realized. It's being received in its fullness. But if we live in that expectation or we expect for what we do not see, then we're eagerly waiting for it with perseverance. So the idea here that we are living, uh, again, I'll borrow this term from Tony Evans in this eschatological dialectic, the idea that we have not, we're, we're living between the now and the not yet. The not yet is a sure thing, but we're just not there yet. And so we're living in expectation. If it were here, we wouldn't be expecting anymore. It's kind of like when we talk about in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, faith, hope, and love, um, you know, these three. Uh, but the greatest of these is love. Why is that? Well, because when we go to heaven, when we're standing before the Lord, uh, we'll no longer need faith because we're, we're right before the one we believe in, we've been believing in. Uh, we don't have to have hope anymore or, again, an expectation because now it's been realized. We're living in it. But love will endure forever. Love never ends, right? Love never fails. And so the idea here of, of waiting and hope and an expectation is just the natural state of the believer, one who is, uh, is redeemed positionally, but practically there is still stuff yet to come, things yet to happen. 
Um, and so we live in the expectation. And that's the encouragement here is that we would, in fact, live in expectation. Uh, this is the natural posture, once again, of a believer. Um, uh, so again, verse 25, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance or steadfast endurance. The idea is that we are persevering, pressing on toward that ultimate realization of the fullness of our redemption, knowing that we'll get there, but yet ultimately still making our way there. As a matter of fact, um, on this note, turn to, this is a passage I love to quote uh, in a number of, uh, whenever the opportunity arises. And so let me invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and read verse 3 through verse 9 where Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. Again, a, an expectation that is for sure, a living hope, and it's rooted on the fact that it is based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, uh, to an, in, an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Again, the idea is that there is a reservation of those, uh, a, a, a preserving of those things that are for us, but there's also a holding on to us and keeping us for it as well, right? So therefore, we live in the expectation of that which is for sure, but just not fully realized yet. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So therefore, in verse 6, it naturally follows that in this we greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, we've been grieved by various trials. Again, the idea of patiently enduring through trials. Now, it is significant that Peter talks about them being potentially necessary. Trials can become something that we grow through, something that God leads us through because they're necessary. They're needed in order to do the work in us that he desires to do, or even the work through us that he might desire to do. But if need be, for a little while, you're uh, grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The idea, once again, speaking of the fact that we've not seen him yet, but we live in the expectation of seeing him, and we know that we will see him. Why? Because it's rooted and built upon the faithfulness of Christ himself who has risen from the dead. Therefore, we too know that we will live and there is a grand inheritance that yet awaits. Uh, and, and in the meantime, between the now and then, there is this time that we are grieved by various trials so that the genuineness of our faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, that this uh, genuineness of our faith may be found to the praise, glory, and honor, or honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the things that we go through now on the road to the celestial city, as we make our way to that eternity with the Lord, as we make our way down the narrow road that leads to everlasting life, we find ourselves having to walk in faith, to trust that God is going to fulfill that which he's promised, to lead us to the other side as he has declared he would do. 
Um, but this sometimes in, involves trials and difficulties and uphill battles and those kinds of things. There's a purpose in them. There should, uh, we should not overlook the importance of knowing and understanding that no trial in our lives is without purpose. God does not waste our lives. He does not waste a moment of our lives needlessly, but rather he pours into each moment an opportunity for growth and maturity and, genu- and the testing of the genuineness of our faith, which again in Romans chapter 8 is exactly the point of what Paul is saying. We press on ultimately knowing that this is for sure and it's coming, but it's not yet. And this time in between becomes an opportunity for the genuineness of our faith to be tested and proven. Um, As a matter of fact, uh, one other passage I'll invite you to turn to uh, and, uh, and look at here. This is in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, if you know Hebrews chapter 11, you know that it is the great hall of faith. There are many, many saints mentioned uh, in this chapter that, uh, that uh, you know, in, in the Old Testament that ultimately lived in the expectation of the hope that they one day would realize, they one day would inherit. So I'm going to read, actually, uh, the first 16 verses. Now, it's a, it's a good portion here, but I want you just to listen to these words, especially, obviously, in the light of what we're talking about here. Um, chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony by faith, in the living out of their faith, they obtained a good testimony. In other words, we've heard of them because they walked faithfully through the things they walked through as they made their way to that expectation, which will be mentioned here in a moment. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. In other words, God created ex nihilo. He created out of nothing. Uh, God created simply by virtue of his own creativity, his own creative acts he created. By the way, I, not to get off track, but let me just mention something here. Verse 3 is something that faith teachers love to twist. Um, they like to make faith a force that we tap into and that actually God himself taps into. And they sometimes translate or uh, misread. I shouldn't say translate because that almost implies an honesty, but this is a completely dishonest uh, manipulating of the text. But sometimes they will uh, say that we understand that by faith, the worlds were framed by the word of God, implying that God used the force of faith to create. Like he believed he could do it and therefore he could do it because faith is a force that you can sort of acquire, kind of like the force in Star Wars or something like that. That's not faith. We understand. We take by faith. We trust in the fact that, even though we didn't see it, we are trusting and believing that God did, in fact, create the world out of nothing. He created it not out of things that were made, but completely out of nothing. He just made it because he chose to make it. And so we point out here the idea of of, uh, not God's faith, per se, like he believed something, but rather faith now becomes this exercising of a belief in God and his capacity to do. Okay. Now, faith is not a force we manipulate to make God do things, but rather we trust God that he has done the things that he has said he's done before, and now looking forward, like these saints that are mentioned here in the passages to come, we too, like them, are encouraged to look by faith toward those things that are yet coming. What things? Well, we'll, what Peter talked about, but also there's mention of it here as well. So let me continue. Verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, and God testifying of his gifts, and through it he, still being dead, speaks. In other words, we still speak of him and his faithfulness, doing as God had told him. 
Uh, verse 5, by faith Enoch. This is Enoch's seventh from Adam that is mentioned uh, in, in uh, early in Genesis. Uh, and by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had his, this testimony that he pleased God. So uh, Abel, uh, Enoch's faith, I should say, was rewarded. He pleased God. He lived for God. We don't really know much about Enoch at all, except that he walked with God and then he was not, for God took him, as the passage says back in Genesis. Um, But what we do know about him is that he pleased God here in the passages, it says, and God took him away. Again, God is sort of painting this picture of fulfilling promises to those who live by faith, those who walk by faith. Now, again, I could easily go on a whole thing about how Uh, Really, no one was saved by law in the Old Testament. These already are examples of those who are saved and ultimately rewarded for their faith, right? And so, therefore, this becomes the model for believers in this day, or certainly, obviously, uh, immediately the day of those uh, who read the book of Hebrews the first time, but by extension to us as well. And so, continuing on here, uh, verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Uh, by faith, well, I, let me just take a minute on that. Two things. We believe that God is. He exists, that he's real, he's there, he is existing, but also that he is active, he is involved, he is um, engaging us and rewarding us uh, uh, because we believe that he is, and he's a reward of those who diligently seek him. There is therefore a response to that that God does. He's not forced to, but he chooses to. This is the entrance point for us in terms of our relationship with God. It is by faith. By the way, that does not mean that we blindly just believe things without any evidence. There are some things that we don't have uh, the capacity to know 100% for sure, and those we do take by, by faith. But everything God has given us as evidence for his existence, his activity, his interacting with, with mankind, uh, all of these different things are given to us so that we might take a very logical, reasonable step in the direction of trusting God as being who he says he is and doing what he does and what he says he'll do. So therefore, um, without faith, of course, if we don't believe that, if we don't believe that God is, and we don't believe that he uh, rewards and that kind of thing, then we can't please him. How can we? Because we don't even believe him or believe in him. But if we do and believe in him and we do believe him, then obviously this is pleasing to God. And this apparently, by virtue of its flowing from this touching on Enoch and Abel, This is what they did. They believed God was and that they believed he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, and they are therefore thus rewarded for that. Uh, Verse 7 continues by explaining that Noah, by by faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, namely rain and and the floods, uh, uh, moved with godly fear. In other words, a genuine, healthy, solid fear of God. In other words, a belief that God's going to do what he says he's going to do, even though I don't understand it or I've not seen it yet. It's a good lesson in faith right there. But he moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. In other words, Noah, the very fact that he believed God and acted on it became a, uh, a source of uh, reward and rescue for him and his family, but it also became a point of conviction and condemnation upon those who disbelieved. 
essentially proving verse 6, or demonstrating better verse 6. By faith Abraham, verse 8, obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So Abraham, as he's called by God, Genesis 12, to go out of the Ur of the Chaldees into this place that God would show him, Abraham believed God and he went. Okay, in other words, he acted on his faith and God rewarded that by leading him to the land that he promised. And this becomes the land, of course, of Israel. But it says something very, very important here in verse 10 that he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now, by the way, um, this is the kind of thing that, uh, that floods toward the end of the chapter too, the idea of looking ahead to that place, that, that heavenly country, if you will. Uh, not, not really connecting with this world, not attaching themselves to this world, but looking ahead to that which they had not seen, but knew that God had promised. And so they lived in that expectation And that's what they were waiting for. The last few verses. By faith, Sarah also herself received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Uh, It's interesting that Sarah laughs in the Old Testament example, or the the account of this, and and God calls her on it. The Lord who's walking with the angels and and reveals what he's going to do through Abraham and Sarai. And Sarah laughs, and that's why they actually call, one of the reasons why they call uh, Isaac laughter. I mean, he, he's he's born to this elderly woman and elderly man, which brings them joy, which creates laughter. But there's also kind of a connection to the fact that at first there was disbelief that God was going to do what he said he was going to do, but he did. And so, um, therefore, from one man, verse 12, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. And so we see the stars in the sky and the sands of the seashore being representative of the descendants of Abraham through the centuries. Now, here we go, the last few verses. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but uh, having seen them afar off, were assured of them. In other words, they were... uh, they were, they were certain that these things were going to come to pass, that the promise of God was yes and amen, if you will. Um, and so they were assured of them, embracing them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. This became the testimony of their faith. They were, they were of the world, but they, or they were in the world, but they were not of the world, much like Jesus would pray for his own disciples in John 17. But this was their testimony. They were strangers and pilgrims. Uh, it's interesting, in Psalm uh, 150, is it verse... Um, I'm sorry, Psalm 19, verse, uh, Psalm 119, verse 150, I think it is, where your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. Uh, the idea of, of recognizing that we are walking according to the word, even singing it to ourselves as we make our way through. Not as we set up camp forever, but as we make our way through. Uh, and so too, their testimony was, um, was, uh, exemplified through their recognition that this was not their their home, but they were making their way to their home. Verse 14, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called uh, to mind that country which they had come out, they would have re- had opportunity to return. In other words, if this was really their home, they would have stuck around there. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. 
And so ultimately, then, of course, it goes on and, and lists all kinds of saints of old who endured tremendous hardship, even torture and death, because they knew this was not their home. Lord, even if I pass here, all that really means, much like a modern day uh, uh, quote would put it, you know, if you hear rumors of my death, don't believe them. I'm more On that day, I will be more alive than I've ever been. Uh, such was their faith in expecting that they would stand before the Lord like Job, and with my eyes, so my flesh be destroyed with my eyes, yet I will see the Lord. And so, going back to our passage in Romans here, we were saved into this expectation. This is something that we have been grafted into as Gentiles. Those who are Jews have been promised this from times of old, and this is where we're moving toward. This idea of the city and uh, whose builder and maker is God, it's not yet been realized. We're, we're living in the hope, the expectation of it. And because we are, in fact, anticipating it and hoping for it, looking with that living hope, the knowledge that it's for sure, we continue to press on, even with great perseverance and steadfast endurance. So uh, we'll talk more about that uh, in the passages ahead where Paul talks about the Holy Spirit's role in aiding us in times of, of pressing on in, with, with endurance, times that are so difficult and heavy that the Holy Spirit takes those, uh, those, those uh, cries of our heart to the Lord, to the Father and such. Uh, so in other words, we don't travel alone, but we ultimately have the one who is alongside of us and even in us as well, the Holy Spirit, as this thought continues. We'll look more at that next time. But for now, uh, again, a good word uh, in the word here from Romans and, and Paul's writing. Have I mentioned recently what a wonderfully rich foundational book the book of Romans is and how important it is for us to study it and to spend time in it, uh, to really just take our time and to try and gain all that we can from these passages, because it is in this book, uh, and of course the whole scripture, but there's there's something really mountaintoppy about this book in terms of the depth of theology, but also I just find it prods me to think very deeply. It prods me to open my heart very widely. It, it prods me to know him, to know the Lord better and better, to to set aside my own sense of how things ought to be in relation to him and what I, how I think he does things and all of that. And it forces me to see that he is far grander than my imagination, far grander than my expectation. He is far grander than anything I can really, uh, that I would ever have thought of. And uh, the book of Romans is so wonderfully rich in that regard. And it's only going to continue to be that way as we make our way through the passages. So I really am glad you're along for this ride, and I uh, hope it's a, a benefit. So praise the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this beautiful, precious uh, passage that we even just read today, you know, sort of couched in between all of these other wonderfully rich passages that we've been making our way through and will in the days ahead. Father, thank you that you've spoken to us, and you've made yourself known not just vaguely, uh, not in some small way, but so richly, uh, Father. So help us as we spend time in your word to delve in and not to be afraid to uh, to explore the passages and let them say what they say so that we might come to know you as you truly are. Thank you, Father. One day we'll see you and you'll be in your presence. We'll, we'll know you in a way that is uh, much more full and complete than it could ever be in this flesh and in this life with all the distractions and the fallenness of it. One day we'll see you as you are. One day we'll experience your presence in a way like we never have. And Father, we just pray that that anticipation, that expectation would drive us to press on uh, with endurance uh, each day, knowing that we find ourselves a day closer to being with you. 
Thank you, Lord, for the great hope that you've given us. And thank you that it is certain. We love you. We praise you and bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.